Uh, I came to OCC um, when, uh, in 2001 to study theology. Um, while I was, uh, I guess since I came here, I, a few things happened. I did a course called Perspectives, which was facilitated by Naomi. Uh, and I was pastored by a guy who, called Len Bartlotti. And so for those of you who know him, it was no surprise that after I uh, left here, I went to Uzbekistan to join a church planting team for 18 months. Um, after that, I came back here, and I trained as a teacher, and I've been working at Charwell School for the last five years, uh, and I'm just about to leave that to go and do some further study uh, looking at gender justice in Afghanistan. Um, today, we're going to be continuing our series in Acts, as has been said, and I really do mean continuing. Um, God has been uh, speaking to us, I think, in about a number of things which have been joining together, some of which has been joining in with what God has been speaking about today. And what he's been speaking about is not, I think, complex, but it is something that he longs for us to hear, hear in a way that changes us. He's been speaking about being filled with the Holy Spirit. He's been speaking, as we've heard today, about being witnesses. And he's been speaking about letting God's biblical reality form our understanding of what reality, of what normality is, uh, rather than, and this Steve explicitly said a couple of weeks ago, rather than letting our past experiences shape our understanding of reality or normality. And there's this fantastic picture of the rhino escaping from the captivity of its past into the freedom of its future. And this is very much... Uh, what I want to be building on today and what I think God wants us to be hearing uh, in a slightly different but similar way today. So if you turn to Acts chapter 8, verse 26, we're going to be hearing about the story of Philip and the Ethiopian eunuch. Um, And I trust that God is going to be speaking to us about hope for new life. Um, so if you follow with me Uh, Acts verse 26 then an angel of the Lord said to Philip get up and go towards the south to the road that goes down from Jerusalem to Gaza this is a wilderness road and so he got up and went Now there was an Ethiopian eunuch, a court official of the Candice, queen of the Ethiopians, in charge of her entire treasury. He had come to Jerusalem to worship and was returning home. Seated in his chariot, he was reading the prophet Isaiah. And then the spirit said to Philip, go over to this chariot and join it. And so Philip ran up to it and heard him reading the prophet Isaiah. He asked him, do you understand what you're reading? And he replied, how can I, unless someone guides me? And he invited Philip to get in and sit beside him. And now the passage of the scripture that he was reading was this. Like a sheep, he was led to the slaughter. And like a lamb, silent before its shearer. So he does not open his mouth. In his humiliation, justice was denied him. Who can describe his generation? For his life is taken away from the earth. And the eunuch asked Philip, about whom, may I ask, does the prophet say this? About himself or someone else? And then Philip began to speak. And starting with this scripture, he proclaimed to him the good news about Jesus. As they were going along the road, they came to some water. And the eunuch said, look, here is water. What is to prevent me from being baptized? And he commanded the chariot to stop. And both of them, Philip and the eunuch, went down into the water. And Philip baptized him. When they came out of the water, the spirit of the Lord snatched Philip away. The eunuch saw him no more and went on his way, rejoicing. 
But Philip found himself at Dezosus, and as he was passing through the region, he proclaimed the good news to all the towns until he came to Caesarea. So, we have three characters in this story. And the first is Philip. Philip, he's the one on the right, is a quite extraordinary person. He's one of the people chosen because he was full of faith and the Holy Spirit to look after this distribution of food so that the apostles didn't have to tear themselves away from prayer and serving the word. Angus spoke to us about them from Acts 6 a few weeks ago. Then, like most of the church, Philip was driven out of Jerusalem by persecution. And again, like most of the church, he proclaimed the word wherever he went. But it's also clear that Philip had a particular gift of evangelism. Luke, in fact, calls him the evangelist when we encounter him later on in Acts 21. I've called him Philip the life-bearer. Earlier in the chapter, we haven't read it, but earlier in Acts 8, uh, we see Philip going down to Samaria. And in Samaria, he preached the good news. He saw spirits cast out. He saw the paralyzed healed. He saw many people believe in the name of Jesus and be baptized. So I've put together a kind of biblical top trumps card for Philip here. And uh, so here we have evangelism, and our scale, our, our top benchmark is 10. And so Philip, on the evangelism scale, gets a 10. Miracles, I've given him 8. Probably not as impressive as Jesus, probably not as impressive as Moses, but some pretty serious uh, miracles going on there. And then we have what Philip gets up to in this story. So we see that he is in touch with God. This given him nine, again, falling slightly below Jesus. Um, he's, he's spoken to by an angel, and then once he's been responding to the angel, he's spoken to by the Spirit. And then further, he is, has it come up? Faithful in response. Um, so I've given him a nine for that. Slightly arbitrary, that one. Um, he, he doesn't know what God is after, but he does what he says. And he's also open to being diverted on the way. So we see he's, been, he's sent down to the road to the south, but he meets the Ethiopian on the way, not once he's got there. Following that, he shows initiative, Eight. Um, he asks this important and powerful stranger if he understands what he's reading. It's a brave thing to do. It shows initiative. And it also, after that, he shows sensitivity. He listens closely. He pays close attention to the questions the stranger has. After that, he shows that he knows the scriptures. And he builds from the Ethiopian's question with an explicit focus on Jesus. Give him nine. Um, and to lead to an explanation from the passage in Isaiah to the good news of Jesus. And then to top it all, he can teleport. <laughs> um, again, I've, I've given him nine for this, because I think possibly, well, my wife and I had an argument about this, but I thought, I thought the ascension might be a cooler form of teleportation. <laughs> And um, Elijah, also, when he's taken off up in the chariot, that was pretty cool. So, so possibly not top-class te- top teleportation. Now, I do, for those of you who are biblical scholars amongst you, I have to recognize that some biblical scholars recognize that the language here doesn't necessarily require that Philip was physically picked up or disappeared by the Holy Spirit and then transported 20 miles. But I think that's what it is saying. And, and if you read your passage... That's what it does seem to be suggesting. But if, if that really messes with you, then you can set it to one side. But I've got him down as teleporting nine. So in our, in our biblical top trump pack, you want a Philip. Um, again, not Jesus, but pretty seriously rocking. Um, reflecting on Philip, 
I've been reminded of a friend who I'm going to call Kate. Uh, This is a book that Kate has released. You can find it on Amazon. It's fantastic. Um, And Kate is a protective pseudonym for my friend, so I'll use it as well. Um, My wife and I met Kate on separate occasions while we were in Afghanistan. In fact, it was she who first said that we should get married. Um, I was, in fact, going out with someone else at the time, and my wife and I hadn't met. Um, So you can get kind of a sense of the type of person that Kate is uh, from that. Kate had a high-powered job in business, uh, which she then left to go and live in Afghanistan and seek to plant churches. And there are two related things that strike you about Kate. The first is that she loves Jesus. She really prioritizes spending time in his presence and growing in intimacy with him. And the second thing is that Kate talks about Jesus whenever she can. She loves hanging out with Afghans, with Muslims in particular, because in that context, it's so natural for her to introduce stories about Jesus from the Bible. And with her, every encounter is an opportunity for discipleship, mostly with people who don't explicitly follow Jesus. And from these encounters, from these discipleship encounters, people do start to trust in Jesus. They do give their lives to him. They seek to follow him, this in a land where less than half of 0.1% of people are Christians. So, Kate doesn't teleport. But I do see in her the same type of life-bearing that we see in Philip in Acts. So that's our first character, Philip. And the second is the Ethiopian eunuch. Now, for clarity's sake, Ethiopia here isn't quite modern-day Ethiopia. It refers to the Nubian kingdom of Kush, which is roughly in South Sudan. And at the time that Acts was written... Ethiopia, or the Nubian kingdom, or Kush, was seen quite literally as being the ends of the earth. The Greek writers Homer and Herodotus both call it that. And we'll return to this fact in a bit. Now, in our biblical top trumps, the eunuch has quite a lot going for him as well. He's powerful. He's in charge of the whole of a queen's treasury. He's also earnestly seeking after God. Given him eight for that. Um, he, you'd have to be earnestly seeking after God to be willing to travel all the way from Ethiopia or South Sudan to Jerusalem to worship God in the first century. He's also humble. He's willing to admit where he doesn't understand. But there is something else. He's a eunuch. A eunuch is someone who is otherwise male, but lacks complete male genitalia. Either he was born without them, or more probably, he'd had them cut off or crushed. I've been researching the methods, and none of them sound very pleasant. (laughs) Um, So, on our top trumps, testicles, (laughs) zero. I'm going to have to wait a couple of extra seconds for Bex here because the um, so eunuchs were valued in the ancient world because they could be trusted to put it frankly not to impregnate women and at a time when knowing who your offspring were was important this was a significant fact So they were valued, and it's no surprise that an Ethiopian queen had a eunuch as a high official. But this meant, this kind of, in a sense, sexual oddity, meant that eunuchs were social outsiders. So you get to three for being socially accepted. They were incomplete. In fact, the Jewish law, with its love of wholeness, actually says in the book of Deuteronomy that eunuchs could not be admitted to the assembly of the Lord. And also, importantly, eunuchs could not have children. 
It's no accident, I think, that the passage from Isaiah 53 has the question, who can speak of his descendants? I imagine when the eunuch retired from court and settled in his bed. His thoughts, his reflections might have been however satisfied he was with his work. But no one will be able to tell of my descendants. And it's for this reason that I've called him the barren eunuch. Hope for descendants, zero. And having introduced these two characters, I have a question. Who do you identify with? You see, as I've reflected, I've come to see that I identify most with the eunuch. There's no good reason why I use that particular picture other than that I like it. Um, So this is me dressed up as Tigger. But it's also me identifying with the eunuch. Uh, In fact, it was quite a tight Tigger suit. So for those of you who remember... Anyway, let's not dwell on that. Um, um, I'd, I'd love to be Philip. Seeing lives transformed on every side, crossing cultures with the gospel. These are some of the things that I value most. But I feel like the eunuch. Not so much an outsider in my case, but someone unfruitful. Despite all my hopes of spiritual children seeing friends or people around me coming to know the joy of the good news of Jesus, I feel sterile. I've been a Christian for as long as I can remember. I've been praying for friends to come to know Jesus since the age of 13. And while I recognize that I've played a role in some people's journeys to faith, I've never led someone to Christ, never discipled someone into the kingdom. Now, I recognize that I have a responsibility in this, but that's not what I feel God is focusing on today. You see, at another level, I feel that I've lost the belief that I can be involved in seeing new life be born into the church. And I must admit that I feel like that when I look at us as a church community too. Not that there aren't loads of fantastic things going on, not that we're not making great contributions to lives in our city. Not that some people aren't coming to know Jesus. And I praise God for all of this. But I see people longing for more. I see people longing for an outpouring of spiritual children. For, in the words of Acts, people to be added to their, to our number daily. But without this seeming to happen. And it's this point that we, that I, needed to be reminded of the third character in the story. We've seen Philip, and we've seen the eunuch. But God is, in this story, entirely in control. I've tried to... So this is, well, I guess God writing, scripture writing, history writing, this encounter. It's God's spirit who fills Philip, enabling those positive top trump qualities that we saw. It's God who sends the angel, God who speaks by his spirit, God who brings the eunuch along, God who plans the passage of scripture that he's reading. And Luke, the author of Acts, is anxious to see, for us to see that God is in control. He said back in Acts 1.8, He tells tells us that Jesus told the disciples that they would be the witnesses in Jerusalem and Judea, and then in Samaria and to the ends of the earth. And so he shows us Philip, in the same chapter, reaching the Samaritans, going to Samaria, and then being the witness to this person who is from Ethiopia, the epitome 
of the ends of the earth. God is in control. Um, Further, God had promised at many points in the Old Testament, specifically about Ethiopia, that God would bring himself to people to himself from Ethiopia. So in Isaiah 11.11, it says the Lord will recover a remnant from Ethiopia. God's promises are in this story being fulfilled. It is God who is the author of life. Luke is saying through Philip, look, this is what God is doing through his church. He is bringing new life to the ends of the earth. And this holds true for us, for me, today. Further, God brings hope to the eunuch. In response to the question, who can speak of his descendants? And the eunuch's asking, who is the prophet talking about? Philip is able to say, Jesus. People thought that Jesus was dead. They thought he had no future, no possibility of descendants. But God resurrected him. And as it says just a few verses on from the passage the the eunuch was reading in Isaiah, he has seen his offspring. Offspring like Philip himself by the Holy Spirit. So this barren eunuch is given hope. Joined to Jesus as he becomes in baptism, he is joined to the author of life itself. And so the eunuch is filled with joy. He discovers to be true another prophecy from Isaiah, that God will give the eunuchs a monument and a name better than sons and daughters, an everlasting name that shall not be cut off. And so God overturns the hopelessness of the eunuch. We don't know what happens to the eunuch beyond his going on his way rejoicing. But the 60 million strong Ethiopian Orthodox Church, however, they think they know what happened to him. They think that he returned to Ethiopia as a witness to Christ. And they trace the history of the gospel in Ethiopia back to him. If you're after sons and daughters, 60 million isn't a bad number. This reminds us that God's life-giving, that our life-bearing, doesn't all look the same. In fact, it all looks pretty different. Acts is not an instruction manual. We're not to expect in post-Christian Britain that the tactics or methods employed by people like Philip will uh, meet with responses precisely like those of the eunuch or the Samaritans. But Acts is a revelation of the nature of God and his kingdom. We can expect that the life-giving nature of God and our call to be a life-bearing church has not changed. And this has further relevance to some of you in particular. Because I recognize that for some of you, your identification with the eunuch is primarily not in relation to spiritual children, but to physical children. This would probably have been the case for my wife and I up until a few months ago. But the promises that we're looking at are no less true. God's life-giving power is no less sure in relation to physical offspring. Now, it's also true that there is variety in the way that those promises and God's nature are worked out. We ourselves found out that God's will for us was for Hannah to conceive. Others in our midst have found out that God had children for them through fostering, through adoption, through depth of relationship. God knows each of our situations. And the life he gives is always good. And today is a day for you too to trust again in God's life-giving power. 
and his life-bearing call on you. So this, then, is God's word to us, to me indeed. It's a reiteration of what Steve said, not to let the past define our normality, but to let Scripture define our normality. God's promises are sure. He calls us, as his witnesses to the ends of the earth, to be life-bearing. He gives children to the barren. If we feel like the eunuch, that spiritual children are just something that happens to other people, we can turn again to the good news of Isaiah, the good news of Jesus, good news which promises life and life in abundance. As we follow God's spirit in Oxford, even as we try to get involved perhaps with people who've come from the ends of the earth to Oxford, we can do so trusting that God is making disciples amongst them. I've chosen a couple of pictures that any number of pictures could have done. So this is a Muslim background believing church and this is group baptisms. I could have chosen pictures relating to life through the school or any number of the hopes for spiritual children, for children that we might have for Oxford Community Church, for us. And this is not an excuse to sit back and wait for God to act. It is a promise, however, that as we seek to engage with God and with our neighbour in God's name, as we respond to the encouragements of past weeks to submit to the Spirit, to speak, to get serious, to make friends and reach out, we can do so trusting that God will act. With God's purposes to take the good news to the ends of the earth, there is hope for new life, even for eunuchs like me. So how can we respond? And Steve, I'll let you say when and how we'll do this. But um, I feel God wants us to acknowledge our disappointment or our sadness with, be it spiritual barrenness. A part of this might also involve repenting of unfaithfulness, but that's not the major focus, but it might be part of it. And then from these, to receive hope that barrenness will be replaced by life-bearing. And Steve, I'll leave. I can pray, or I can leave with you. That's good, isn't it? Thank you, Adam. Um, We're going to hold off a little bit from all of the praying that we might yet do this morning because um, there's, there's more going from us this morning that we've yet to get to. And um, I'm going to be really brief because I want to give as much time as possible for Mike to put the mic on, <laughs> for Mike to speak to us in a second. Because as many of you know, Mike and Liz are about to, uh, in the next six weeks or so, head off to Canada for a good chunk of time. And so um, before they go, we're going to pray for them this morning in their going off to Canada. But I felt stirred that it would be great just to hear from Mike especially something of what God's put on his heart. Because in all of the talk there's been about going out this morning, whether it's going into our workplaces or going overseas or whatever and bearing life. Um, Mike and Liz have been at the forefront of leading us in that for many years. And before they go, I thought it would be good for him to have the opportunity to impart a bit more to us. So Mike, uh, have your liberty. Good. Thanks, Steve. Um, I want to try and draw together some themes, really, out of um, this morning, as well as tell you a little bit. Steve's asked me to um, both communicate a bit of what Liz and I are going to be doing, but also to share my own heart, and I definitely want to draw some things together, and then we'll we'll go back to um, where Adam left us. Um, How many of us know that God has a way of surprising us? Have you lived long enough to discover that? 
You know, you thought you were doing all right, thank you very much. Going along this way, and all of a sudden, God brings a road sign, and he turns you off in a different direction. Well, that certainly happened for Liz and I earlier this year. We went to Regent College in Vancouver for a sabbatical. I can't remember when I last had a previous sabbatical. It was that long ago, and the idea was to go and get refreshed and get my theology sharpened and up to date. But while we were there, God uh, spoke to us really quite unexpectedly. Uh, I met a young man called Tim, who is the pastor of Paul and Sarah Williams. How many of you know the Williams were around when they were here? Well, it's Paul and Sarah's church, and they've been there ever since uh, they left us here and have been putting in some of our values and DNA over that time. And... uh, Paul suggested it would be great if I could spend some time with Tim. He's planted a church out of a mother church. And in seven years, he's seen it grown from nothing to about 200 on the university campus. He's got a passionate church planting heart. He's definitely apostolic by gifting. And I spent some time with him while I was there and finding my heart drawn more and more closely to him. And on the second evening that we spent together... Um, I said to him, do you know, Tim, if, if there's any way I can help you when I go back home, um, Skype calls, you know, even coming over for a visit at some point in the future, I'd be, I'd be happy to consider it. And he looked me straight in the eye and said, all right then, why don't you come and work with me for 12 to 18 months and mentor me? And I thought, no, Skype. Skype. I sort of said, yeah, 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 I could pray about that. And went away thinking, I'm not going to pray about that. (laughs) Ever had those times? (laughs) But finding there was a Holy Spirit niggle in my heart that wouldn't go away. And then finding over the next few days, reading the scriptures that I would just have been reading over those days, these scriptures having an irritating tone of leave and go to them and I thought what I need is I need a good clear prophetic word from someone who knows nothing about this so I uh, emailed Bryn Franklin who's those of you who don't know him very very sort of senior level prophet um, just sent him a message saying hi Bryn seeking God about something if he gives you anything would you let me know and he wrote back and said sure Ten days later, he got in touch with me and started to outline a prophetic picture that God had given to him that without going into all the micro details, sent shivers down my back. Have you ever had one of those when you think, someone's been reading my mail? And it was unmistakable that God wanted us to go back, um, came back here, kept looking for Direction. We didn't tell many people, actually. The only people we told were Stephen Lorraine Thomas, Keith and Eileen Elmitt, and Jeff and Mary Norwich. Because what we didn't want was people's spiritual best wishes uh, as prophecy. We wanted to hear from God. But through a whole number of things from people here in other OCT churches, um, God has spoken very clearly. But we need to go back. We're going back, in fact, for nine months for an academic year because there are lots of students in the church, um, to really help mentor Tim, help mentor his leadership team, and to help them strategize for the future and plant churches across Vancouver. It's obviously a major key city uh, in Canada. Uh, Tim has grown this church to a couple of hundred people without ever having had any help or any mentoring at all. He's a guy with enormous potential and uh, it's a privilege for Liz and I to go and work with him and his wife. So Liz has resigned from her job and the teaching at the school round the corner. The tickets are booked for August the 30th and uh, we are going to have an adventure. Um, Very thrilled that God still has adventures for old people. (laughs) Can any old people say amen? Equally, God has adventures for young people. Any young people say amen? You've heard about some this morning already. 
um, God does have adventures for us. And in just drawing together, I think, what God's been saying this morning, which is what Steve asked me to do, to share my heart and try to draw things um, together. Um, For me, going to Canada is probably just another result of a seed that God planted in me many, many years ago. My testimony is that I became a Christian when I was 18 years old, between leaving university and going to, sorry, between leaving school and going to university. And uh, I got invited to a local Baptist church youth club by a friend at school who said, do you want to come to our youth club? I said, yeah, you know, what do you do? And he told me, I said, oh, that sounds good. Said it was attached to the church, and I thought, oh, well, maybe not. And then he said those magic words, there are lots of pretty girls. I thought, that sounds good. I went. There were lots of pretty girls, so I went back next week. And next week, and next week, and next week. And over that summer, just sort of got influenced by the gospel and came to a point where I thought, do you know what? I really do believe this. And eventually got down on my knees by my bed and said, God, I am sure I know you and I'm sure I'm saved. But just to make sure... At 10 minutes past 12, on whatever date it was, I give my life to you now. Because I wanted to make sure it was done. And what happened then was I went off to university at Durham. First boy from my South Yorkshire village ever to go to university. This was an adventure. Durham was 100 miles away. This was a long, long way away from South Yorkshire in those days. And got planted two seeds in my heart. The first was um, love for teaching the Bible because someone took me under their wing when I arrived at university. They discovered I'd just become a Christian, took me under their wing and started mentoring me, discipling me. Though I don't even know that we called it that in those days. And this guy, a guy called Derek, Derek Tidball, he was formerly the principal at London School of Theology till he retired recently, Uh, He used to go out preaching in the local churches around up in Durham. And he he used to say, do you want to come with me for the ride? And I said, yeah, I'll come with you. And then he'd get me reading the Bible in the service and things like that. A bit more formal service in those days. And I still remember where I was sitting, Eshwinning Baptist Church, in a pew towards the rear. Traditional style, pewed Baptist Church with a balcony. When I heard Derek preaching one day... And I thought, I wonder if I'll ever end up doing that. I do believe that was a Holy Spirit seed that God planted for the call on my life to be teaching God's word. And since then, my story is that I've ended up teaching God's word uh, all over the world in lots of different nations and discovering God has a big family and writing some reference books, some of which conveniently happen to be on sale at a reduced price after the meeting today. (laughs) First seed, a love for teaching the Bible. Second seed, a heart for reaching the nations. Derek used to be the northeast representative for a mission organization called International Nepal Fellowship. So I used to go out with him when he did his missionary nights, you know, drumming up support and getting prayer support for the missionaries and trying to raise funds and so on. And he had, old people, you'll understand this, a slideshow. Do you remember slideshows? Now, for those of you who are under about 40, slides were sort of little photographs that you put in a machine that projected them, the equivalent of uh, sort of PowerPoint today. And he had this presentation and... Uh, It always ended, every time, with the slide of a sunset going down behind Fishtail Mountain at Pokhara in Nepal. And there was these violins in the background. And and every time I would weep. I'd seen this thing so many times. I could have written the script. I could have done the talk for him. And every time I would weep for these people who didn't know Jesus. I didn't know it, but God was planting a seed in my heart for his world. And here I am now, 45 years later, by the grace of God, still pursuing those two seeds of teaching and reaching and about to start another big adventure. 
Now, what I want to say this morning in rounding this up is this. It would be very easy for all of us to sit there today and to say, well, that's Mike and Liz. No, this God is our God together, which we've already had emphasized today. This is something that's in God's heart and this emphasis of going, it's been something that has been certainly in Steve Thomas's heart, who really was the founder of Oxfordshire Community Churches many years ago. Uh, I met him in 1977 for the first time when I was a pastor in Manchester, moved here in 91 to join his team down here. It's been in Steve's heart for as long as I've known him to give the best away into God's world. And I know that's Steve Jones's heart as well. But actually, it's a bit irrelevant that it's in Steve Thomas's heart or in Steve Jones's heart. The more important one is it's in God's heart. And what I want to leave us with is simply two pegs to add on to what we've already had today. The first is that our God is a going God. Uh, that's how the Bible reveals him to be. He is not like the gods of Greek philosophy. You know, some of the Greek philosophers used to talk about God as the unmoved mover. That's really exciting, that, isn't it? I mean, imagine doing door-to-door visiting or stopping people in the streets and saying, excuse me, can I introduce you to the unmoved mover? God out there, unaffected by anything, really removed from his world. That's not the God of the Bible at all, is it? From the very beginning, God is a going God. Just look at the first few verses. When God brings creation into being, this is not a picture of the Trinity sitting there in heaven, wherever heaven is, just enjoying themselves. But God sends the Spirit out from him to go out and to create. Later, the Trinity will send out from them the Son to to go out and to save the world. And Father and Son will then send out the Spirit to go out and to transform people's lives. Our God is a going God. Amen? He is not the unmoved mover. Distant, unaffected, uncaring. He is constantly reaching out beyond himself. Not because he needs anything, but because he loves everything. And the second thing I want to draw together this morning is... Because God is a going God, he is looking for a going people. And again, that's something you find from the earliest pages of Scripture. Has it ever occurred to you that when Adam and Eve are created by God in that story, uh, the beginning of the Bible, God makes these this couple and he tells them to do what? He tells them to fill the earth and... Subdue it. In other words, to express his kingdom, kingly rule over the whole of the earth. To go out and to fill the earth and subdue it. How do you think they would have done that if they'd stayed in the Garden of Eden? Oh, I know they ended up getting kicked out of the Garden of Eden because of sin. But sometimes some of us think that Adam and Eve were really intended to sit in the garden forever. No, they were created to be a going people. To go and to fill the earth and to fill it with godness and godly descendants. In Genesis chapter 11 we get the story of the Tower of Babel which many of us know well but interpret wrongly. We know the story of these people saying, come let us build a tower for ourselves that we may make a name for ourselves. Ah, pride we hear. But we don't go on and read the rest of the verse. That we may make a name for ourselves and not be scattered. The resistance here was was not so much in building the, the tower. It was a resistance to God's pushing people out to fill the earth with offspring, with godly offspring. So what does God do? He says, we'll sort that lot out. He confuses all their language and he says, now try living together. 
and they separate into people groups. Now, whatever complex picture that might express doesn't matter for the moment. But here is the heart of God, a a going God with a going people. And then in Genesis 12, we get the call of Abraham. Go to the land that I will show you. Now we've got a covenant going people are going to go into that world to redeem it and its inhabitants for God. Get the same in the New Testament. The going people message is still there. End of Matthew 28, before Jesus returns to heaven. All authority in heaven and on earth is given to me. Therefore, two people knew that. That's good. All authority in heaven and earth is given to me. Therefore, go into all the world and make disciples. There's the going God and the going people again. That's what you've been seeing in the book of Acts over these last few weeks. From the Acts 1-8 that Adam read earlier, you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you and you will be my witnesses in, come on, audience participation time again, Jerusalem Jerusalem and Judea Judea and Samaria Samaria and the ends of the earth. And that's what we find in Acts. Acts 8 has got this going. God says, if I can't get you going, I'll send a bit of persecution to get you going. Which is why Philip ended up where he did. Because they got pushed out. In Acts 11, Antioch becomes one of the most vibrant of the early churches. They're seeing miracles, they're seeing salvation. And in Acts 13, God goes and spoils their party. Because while the elders were praying and seeking God, the Holy Spirit said, set apart for me Saul and Barnabas for the work that I've called them to. And he sends them out. Why? Because God is a going God and his people are a going people. That's what we've been hearing about this morning. Going God, going people. That's the very foundation stone of the church. It's the very foundation stone of this church. I feel like saying, since he said, I can say what I like and I'm going soon anyway. You know, if if you don't want to know a going God and be part of a going people, go go and join the Scientologists. Or something. I don't know, just... <laughs> just but I mean this is what this is what church is about. It's about knowing a going God who is not the unmoved mover, but who is constantly going out to reach people and change lives and heal people and free them, like happened in that story that we've just had in Acts and is still happening today. A going God who's looking for a going people. And do you know what? Going sometimes costs us it's great it's exciting I've had some brilliant adventures travelling around the world but I've also nearly been caught up in the middle of a gun battle and nearly run over by a Land Rover and nearly in a plane crash and certainly kicked out of one of those countries I've been to for all of us Going costs, it might be our comfort, our convenience, our time, our money, our holidays, our plans, our future, maybe even our life like you saw with Stephen the other week. Do you know what? But once you've tasted going, you wouldn't swap it for anything else in the world. So I want to pull this morning together. Is your God a going God? Or is he an unmoved mover? And are you going to be a going people? For all of us tomorrow, all of us are going to go somewhere into God's world. We're going to go to our place of work, our place of study, our friendships, our neighbour groups, whatever they might be. For some of us, knowing the going God and being part of a going people might just be Going more intentionally tomorrow to the place you went to yesterday and Friday. For some of you, it might be going into your neighborhood more intentionally as a missional community group. So you've got your missional community groups. Fantastic. But the next stage is being more intentional in that missional community group, actually going and seeing people one like Philip did with the Ethiopian eunuch. For some of you, it might be going on a mission trip. 
you know, it's easier than ever today to go and visit some missionaries or a church in another nation. It is not difficult to do, and often it's not expensive. So here's a challenge. What about your missional community group making a plan to go and visit one of our mission contacts somewhere? If you don't know where they are, come and talk to Keith. Ask him. Where would be good for us to go as a group? Obviously, there are some places you can't go because it's unwise for a group of 12 Christians suddenly to arrive in the middle of certain countries. But there are some it's very easy to go. And taste for yourself what it's like to go. Why not? I've known people who've done that. For some of you, it might be going more consistently in prayer. Praying for those who've gone. Not just those who've gone today, but fellow, for some of you this morning, it might actually be going to the nation that God has put on your heart. Maybe you felt God put a nation on your heart some years ago and there is timing. I just wondered whether there was someone who felt God had spoke to them some time ago about going to a nation and it sort of died on you. Or there was some block. God spoke this morning about streams in the desert flowing again. I wonder if there's someone who even now the Holy Spirit is just prompting about that going again. And the amazing thing, as Adam finished with this morning, is we're not left to this going on our own. We have a wonderful Holy Spirit who in our going can say, here, fill it, turn left and go this way. We have a wonderful Holy Spirit. That's why it's so important to be filled with the Holy Spirit to help us in our going. Going God, going people. God says he's doing a new thing, streams in the desert. He wants us today to acknowledge spiritual disappointment, barrenness, to repent of unfaithfulness, and to receive his Holy Spirit once anew, to be commissioned for being a going people. God is a God who loves to surprise us, whatever our age. He's a going God. Will we be a going people?